0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 4. Reigns of Terror. And then came also God, in highest heaven have mercy, the Executioner and he put the thumbscrews on me, both hands bound together, so that the blood spurted from the nails and everywhere, so that for four weeks I could not use my hands, as you can see from my writing. Johannes Junius, Mayor of Bamberg With fire and sword, I fought, with mild strength and inflexible gentleness, against the promoters of superstition, fortune-telling witchcraft and poison brewing prince bishop johann gottfried van askhausen welcome back to the history of witchcraft podcast last week we were in rottenburg ob der tauber in 1563 and trier during their witch panic in the 1580s and 1590s when we talked about rottenburg it was quite a relaxed affair. A family, the Brosoms, were slandered with accusations that they dabbled in witchcraft, and they took their accusers to court. No one was tortured, and no one was executed. The accusers admitted that they had made it all up, and were subsequently banished from Rottenburg and its surrounding lands for life. Now, whether you consider this to be a just punishment or not, it was incredibly restrained for the time. The Council of Rottenburg had the legal right to extract confessions from the Brosoms through torture, and yet they did not choose to do so straight away, and after their accusers confessed to fabricating the story, the Brosoms were allowed their freedom. All quite nice and rational and relaxed. Events in Rottenburg were completely the opposite of events we looked at in Trier. At Trier, Hundreds were executed over the span of six years. Torture was used liberally and without restraint. While many of the accused were peasants, a significant number were wealthy and powerful individuals, not least the chief judge of Trier himself, Dietrich Flader. Flader found himself the subject of numerous denunciations from convicted witches, and while the names of powerful and notable people were often given under torture, as they racked their memories for any and all names they could give to stop the pain, his was seized upon by his enemies. For in his role as a judge, Flader had been suspiciously lenient on those who had, by their own confession, consorted with the devil. Flader was himself arrested Tortured and executed, although he was given the mercy of being hanged before being burnt. Other opponents of the trials, such as Cornelius Luz, found themselves brought before the court on charges of heresy for daring to question the motives of those doing the torturing and burning. The trials of Trier are often listed as one of the fourth worst witchcraft trials in Germany at this time. Today we will look at two of the remaining three and their viciousness make Tria look like a calm and sensible discussion. I should warn you that this is not me being my usual dramatic self. Today's show is going to involve a, frankly, depressing number of innocents being tortured and executed, particularly children and pregnant women. I'd like to give you a timestamp to skip to if this bothered you, but these events are covered throughout the episode. I will try and keep it as tame as possible, but consider yourself warned. The Hessian city of Fulda can be found near the centre of modern-day Germany. For me, Fulda is famous for two things, the power metal band Edguy and the witchcraft trials of the early 17th century. Now, I could talk for a while about Tobias Sammet's strengths as a vocalist and songwriter, and which of Edguy's albums is my favourite, Rocket Ride, by the way, but I would hazard a guess that you, listener of the History of Witchcraft podcast, are probably a bit more interested in the witch trials I mentioned. The trials themselves kicked off in 1602, but our story begins 30 years prior to then, with the first reign of Prince Abbot Balthazar von Dernbach. Notice I said first reign, we'll get to that in a minute. Dernbach was born in 1548 to a knightly family in Wiesenfeld, Hesse, the youngest of 15 children, Despite his upbringing in a staunchly Lutheran household, when his father died in 1560, the 12-year-old Balthazar was dispatched by his mother to the Catholic monastery of Fulda, where her brother was Prince Abbot. Balthazar's uncle, Prince Abbot Wilhelm Hartmann Clower von Unzivora, now that's a mouthful, raised the boy as a staunch Catholic, ordaining him a priest in 1566 at Würzburg at the age of 18. When his uncle died in 1570, the now 22-year-old Balthazar was elected as his successor. Now Prince Abbot Balthazar, he aided a few of his many brothers to positions of high office. One particular result of this perfectly normal nepotism was that Balthazar's nephew, Peter Philip von Dernbach, would serve at the court of the Prince Bishop of Bamberg, eventually becoming the Prince Bishop of Bamberg as well as Würzburg. The sheer interconnectivity of this family is incredible, as Würzburg and Bamberg are the two other places who hold the unwanted title of Deadliest Witch Trials in early modern Germany. While Peter Philip was not Prince Bishop until many years after the trials, he appeared in Bamberg as their trials were winding up. What a small world early modern ecclesiastical careers were. Back to Balthasar. After taking up the mantle of Prince Bishop at the bright young age of 22, Balthazar set about hard at work attempting to roll back the Reformation. If there was one thing Balthazar hated, it was the Protestants. Now, whether or not this stemmed from his conversion to Catholicism, who can say, but almost immediately, Balthazar summoned the Jesuit order to Fulda and ordered them to found a school. His predecessors, including his uncle, had tolerated Protestantism within their territory, and it had flourished. Balthazar would have none of that he ordered his new subjects to return to the Catholic fold or be banished from Fulda. Understandably, this provoked resentment, and despite his princely title, Balthasar was not all-powerful. A conspiracy of local officials, notable citizens, and Teutonic knights ousted the Prince Abbot in 1576, forcing him to sign a letter of abdication and pass the Prince Abbacy to his neighbour, Julius Echter von Mespelbrunn. Prince-Bishop of Würzburg. See, there's that connection again. Balthazar fled to the Archbishopric of Mainz, a territory that had witchcraft trials of its own in the 17th century under the, quite brilliantly named, Georg Friedrich von Griefenclaw. Sadly, I could not find much on these events, so we will have to return to Griefenclaw in a later episode. The current Archbishop of Mainz, Daniel of Homburg, was a gracious host of the ousted Prince Abbot, giving Balthazar a castle to live in while all this palaver was sorted out. To the surprise of no one, once Balthazar was safe, in a bloody castle no less, he revoked his abdication letter and complained about the whole fiasco to the Emperor, Maximilian II and Pope Gregory XIII. How's that for an unemployment tribunal? The Pope duly threatened Mespelbrunn with excommunication unless he gave up his rule and claim over Fulda, and Mespelbrunn essentially responded with, see you in court. The lawsuit would take 26 years to come to a conclusion, and in that time Mespelbrunn would essentially continue Balthazar's counter-reformation work. The Jesuits were promoted and supported, Lutheran preachers were expelled from his combined territories, he removed any priests that were unwilling to follow canon law, and officials were required to follow Catholic teachings. When Balthasar returned to his territory, his title restored by the aulic Council in 1602, he was clearly not satisfied by Mespelbrunn's efforts. Prince Abbot Balthazar von Dernbach, in the words of Middelfort, began a reign of terror. Balthazar did not return to Fulda alone, however, the stablemaster and forester of the castle Balthazar had been exiled to, Balthazar Nus, came with him. For obvious reasons, namely that we now have two important Balthazars in the story, from now on the prince abbot will be addressed as Durnbach, and his new right-hand man will be Nus. For that was what Nus was, Dernbach's right hand. Dernbach may have initiated the trials, but Nus took to them with relish, proudly boasting that he had personally sent over 700 witches to the stake, over 200 in one year. Nus was a piece of work, and I say this as someone who generally believes that historians should not be overly judgmental about their subjects, but Nus is certainly an exception. Given the title of Malefis Meister by Dernbach, a title that I have only ever seen used in relation to Nuss, He violated what lax regulations were in place for the conduct of witch trials. Nuss was personally involved in many of the interrogations, and dreamt up fresh new methods of torture for his victims. Exhibiting the worst aspects of the witch craze, Nuss profited greatly from the confiscation of the assets of convicted witches, targeting particularly wealthy individuals by asking for specific names. Subject to excruciating pain and denouncing every person they could think of, his victims would swiftly denounce whoever it was that Nuss named. That person, whether due to Nus coveting their wealth, their property, their wife, or just straight up not liking them, would subsequently be hauled into the torture chambers, and so the cycle continued. One of the most well-known victims of the Fulda trials was Murga Ben, a thrice-married Fulda native and the beneficiary of the wills of her first two husbands. She had been married to her third and final husband for 14 years in 1602, returning to the city of Fulda just in time for Dernbach to do the same. In June of 1602, Murger was arrested and dumped into prison on suspicion of witchcraft. Her husband travelled the substantial distance, over 100 miles, to Speyer to complain to the Reichskammergericht, the jointly highest judicial body in the Holy Roman Empire, alongside the Orlik Council that returned Dernbach to his abbacy. Here, her husband begged for mercy for Murga, as well as their unborn child. Murgo was tortured into confessing to the murder of her second husband, as well as the children she had borne him, and that she had taken part in the witch's sabbat. Her pregnancy far from eliciting sympathy from Nuss and his prosecutors, was actually used against Merger. This was her first child in 14 years of marriage. Merger was made to confess that the child was not her husband's, that it was the spawn of the devil, conceived during the Sabbath. Merger, still pregnant, was burnt at the stake in 1603. When I said that Nuss was a piece of work, I was being tame for the sake of the podcast's clean rating. The folder trials continued until Dernbach's death in either 1605 or 1606, with Nuss continuing them for a short period before the ascension of the new Prince Abbot, Johann Friedrich von Schwalbach. Schwalbach put an end to the trials, and had Nuss arrested for his exploitation. Nuss would languish in prison for 12 or 13 years, as the Prince Abbot and the Faculty of Law at Ingolstadt heard the testimony of crimes from his survivors. Nuss would remain in the dungeons of Folder until he was convicted, dragged to face the jeering crowds, and executed by decapitation. Folder's traditional site of execution was a small hill to the east of the city, and this was where the bulk of the Folder trial victims were burnt alive. While I do not know for certain, this would be the likely spot of Nuss' execution, which is no small piece of irony. While Balthasar Nus' claim of burning over 700 witches is unlikely, verifiable accounts put his number of victims at a minimum of over 250. For the next decade and a half after Fulda, the Holy Roman Empire enjoyed similar trials, such as those at Elvangen, Hitzaka and Lemgo, but none would be as severe or as deadly as Dernbeck and Nus's brainchild. That is, until two trials that occurred over the same time period, and were both become infamous for the sheer number of people sacrificed to the flames. The trials held at Bamberg and Würzburg have combined casualty figures of well over a thousand people over five years of chaos. The Bamberg trials led to an estimated 600 deaths, while Würzburg holds the dubious honour of the deadliest witch panic in all of German history with over 900 executions over the same period. Bamberg is a Bavarian town that has a rich history, and one that is closely tied to those of Würzburg and Fulda. First Christianized by the monks of Fulda Abbey, the diocese was subject to the Bishop of Würzburg. Again, this isn't to suggest some sort of conspiracy between the three territories, only to highlight the interconnected nature of early modern bishoprics. Bamberg was eventually separated from Würzburg and enjoyed its own small trials in the years preceding 1626. While many of the early trials were mere sideshows of the Counter-Reformation, it was under Prince Bishop Johann Gottfried van Askhausen that trials truly became destructive. Askhausen ruled Bamberg between 1609 and 1622, adding the bishopric of Würzburg to his titles in 1617. In one year, a family quarrel escalated dramatically and 15 people were executed at the stake. And in 1616, a series of crop failures had the expected outcome of a witch panic, with Aschhausen overseeing further trials. It was in his final year in office, 1622, that the largest number of trials during his reign took place. Over 150 trials were recorded, with most resulting in execution. In total, estimates have put the number of witches executed on his authority close to 300. This is a substantial number, especially compared to previous trials, and it is possible that Askhausen would be remembered as fondly as Durnbach and Nuss had his successor not topped his score. This successor was known as the Hexenbrenner, the Witchburner, or alternatively the Hexenbischof, the Witch Bishop. His name was Johann Georg Fuchs von Dornheim, and he was the Prince-Bishop of Bamberg from 1623 until 1633. Now, whether Dornheim received those nicknames during his lifetime or after his death, he certainly earned them. In 1626, the vineyards and fields of the region froze over in a snap freeze, an event that is credited with the simultaneous witch panics in Bamberg and Würzburg. Dornheim's trials Grew to a chillingly industrial scale. The bishop had a crematorium constructed at Zeil am Main, only a few miles outside of Bamberg, in order to save on timber. Building all those stakes sure is expensive. He also built a special prison, multiple special prisons, to house suspected witches. The Drudenhaus or Malefice House, where the cells and torture chambers were decorated with Bible verses. I have been unable to find a notable underling that could be blamed for the severity of the trials, such as with Dernbach and Nuss, or even Schoenenberg and Binsfeld. No, Dornheim doesn't have a deputy to point to and say his orders were misinterpreted, or his servants took things too far. There are three particular cases in this trial that I'd like to focus on. The first is of the Chancellor of Bamberg, Georg Hahn, who had served under Askhausen and remained in the administration of Bamberg under Dornheim. Hahn is credited with being a moderating influence on Askhausen, as he was a vocal opponent of the witch trials, and between the bishop's death and Dornheim's ascension, was credited with ending the trials of his former employer. Sadly, as we have seen in Trier with Cornelius Luz and Dietrich Flader, it is a dangerous proposition to try and stand in the way of a witch panic, and Hahn's story is particularly tragic. After the trials returned with a vengeance in 1626, Hahn again openly criticised the policy, going so far as to sue Dornheim in 1627, travelling from Bamberg to Speyer to present his case. This was a dangerous move on the part of Hahn, and it is genuinely impressive that he would stand up for his principles in such a way. Sadly, the Prince-Bishop did not agree. The downfall of Hahn began in April, when the wife of one of his colleagues, Christina Moorhaupt, was arrested on suspicion of witchcraft. Under torture, Christina revealed that she had been taught the ways of witchcraft by her mother 11 years ago, and named her two maids as accomplices in her crimes. They were, in turn, arrested and tortured, and named Christina's 14-year-old son, Hans Moorhaupt, as another accomplice, as well as a young woman called Ellen von Kronach. Kronach in turn named the wives of many leading men of the city, including both Han's wife Katharina, as well as the wife of Johannes Junius, who we shall cover later in the episode. Young Hans was tortured, and gave up the name of his younger brother Martin, as well as many other members of the Hahn family. So valuable was his testimony, that young Hans was kept alive until the following year, used to name further suspects as well as provide evidence against Georg Hahn and his family. He was then executed in April 1628 after months of torture, and knowing that he had sent his entire family and many of his friends to the stake. His mother Christina was executed in August of the previous year. When Hahn departed for Speyer in December, the suspicion towards his family was already present, his wife, Katerina, his daughter, also called Katarina, were arrested shortly after he left the city. Katerina Sr. was tortured until she confessed to her crimes, and was executed on the 16th of January. Katerina Jr. was soon to follow her. So when Georg Hahn returned from Speyer, he arrived to find that his wife and daughter had been arrested, tortured, and executed in his absence. I simply cannot imagine what this must have felt like to Hahn. Quite understandably ever so slightly worried that he would be next, considering he just went and told the Reichskammergericht that his boss was completely insane, he sought help from Maximilian I, Elector of Bavaria, who sent word that he was safe at his court, and demanding that Hahn be allowed to leave Bamberg. However, the messenger with this safe passage was prevented from reaching Hahn, although I don't know exactly how and subsequently Georg Hahn was duly arrested and tortured on charges of witchcraft. Traditionally, the story goes that he had been denounced by his son, Adam, but I doubt it was entirely voluntary. Georg Hahn was tortured and confessed to the charges, although one has to wonder how much spirit the man had after the last week. He was duly executed on the 24th of January, meaning that this whole fiasco had only taken a matter of days between his wife's execution and his own. His will gave his remaining wealth to his surviving children and some friends, and he left nothing for the church that had destroyed his life. Hans' last daughter and his son Adam were arrested and executed in 1629, but his surviving three sons received protection from the Heilig Grab Abbey and managed to survive the murderous rampage of the Hexenbrenner. The second notable victim of the Bamberg witch trials was Johannes Junius, a burgermeister of the city. Junius is often described as a mayor of Bamberg, but this is a translation that does not quite describe his role. He was not a mayor in the manner of a British or American mayor, an individual in charge of civil affairs in his jurisdiction, but he was more of a chairman of an executive council. Eunius had been a Bürgermeister multiple times over his career, and held the title from 1624 until 1628. I'm sure you can guess why he lost his title that year. During the trial of Ellen von Kronach, she named a number of well-known wives of leading men of the city, including Eunius as well as one of his colleagues, Georg Neudecker. Eunius's wife had been executed shortly after Cronach. And Neodecker was duly arrested in April 1628 for his wife's confession. Already under suspicion himself due to his wife's supposed crimes, when Neodecker named Euneus as his accomplice in witchcraft, the burgomaster's goose was well and truly cooked. In June, Euneus was arrested and accused of the usual that he had consorted with the devil, conspired against the people, and destroyed the harvest. Eunius politely denied any involvement, and demanded to confront the witnesses that had named him. This was not going to happen. Even if most of these witnesses had not long been burned at the stake, it was highly unorthodox to allow the accused to challenge their accusers. Faced with such a terrible thing as a suspect unwilling to admit to his crimes, the prosecutors began the torture. Eunice held out for over a week, resisting the thumbscrews Legvices and Strapado that were used against him. He finally broke, as all eventually did, and confessed on the 5th of July. He claimed to have renounced God, and to have worshipped Satan, and that he saw almost 30 colleagues at a witch's sabbat. Aeneas claimed that, back in 1624, he had been seduced by a beautiful woman, who was later revealed to be a succubus, a demon, that leads men astray through sexual seduction. This succubus then threatened to kill him, unless he renounced God, only for Aeneas to shout, God forbid, causing her to disappear. She did, however, immediately return with company, multiple more demons, and attacked him, only relenting when he agreed. He took the name of Crix, and was provided a familiar called Fuxin, or Vixen. Almost like supernatural hazing, Once this was done, his fellow townsfolk revealed that they, too, were part of this devilish club, and invited him to sabbats, which he attended regularly by riding on the back of a giant flying black dog. At one sabbat, the demon Beelzebub appeared, although I cannot tell whether this Beelzebub was intended to be the true Satan or merely a prince of hell. He refused to sacrifice his children in honour of the devil, but did offer up his horse, as well as stealing and burying a sacred wafer used in Catholic communion. Once all of this was duly confessed, Johannes Eunice was burnt at the stake until he was ash. The reason we focus on Eunice instead of his colleagues, some of whom shared similar fates, is due to his tenacity. On the 24th of July, before his execution, Eunice managed to smuggle a letter out of his prison and it was delivered to his daughter Veronica. In the letter, Eunice defends his innocence, describing the full horror of the torture that had been inflicted upon him. I read a small excerpt of this letter at the beginning of the episode, where he explains that the thumbscrews have left him unable to write in a legible manner. He claims that those that had denounced him had, if able to, begged his forgiveness, and that he had tried to craft a confession that gave no new names in the hope that the slaughter would end He had been caught out, however, and tortured further until he gave in. Aeneas ends the letter, well aware that these were the last words his daughter would ever receive from him, with, Now, dear child, here you have all my confession, for which I must die. And they are sheer lies and made-up things, so help me God. For all this I was forced to say through fear of torture, which was threatened beyond what I had already endured. For they will never leave off with the torture till one confesses something. Be he never so good, he must be a witch. Nobody escapes. Dear child, keep this letter secret, so that people do not find it. Else I shall be tortured most piteously, and the jailers will be beheaded. So strictly is it forbidden. Dear child, pay this man a dollar. I have taken several days to write this. My hands are both lame. I am in a sad plight. Good night, for your father Johannes Junius will never see you more. July 24, 1628. The third notable trial is that of Dorothea Flock, a member of a wealthy Nuremberg merchant family, and second wife of Bangburg councillor Georg Flock. As an aside, Georg's first wife had been executed for witchcraft in May 1628. Dorothea was the subject of an anonymous accusation in 1629, and was arrested in December on charges of adultery. She managed to gain her release from custody, but was shortly after rearrested, this time on charges of witchcraft, and was imprisoned in the Hexen House. Her husband, who understandably had little faith in the justice of these trials, travelled to her family in Nuremberg, who were highly influential with numerous contacts and sought their assistance to rescue their daughter. What followed was, in modern terms, an international humanitarian effort. Georg and Dorothea's family sought and gained political support from officials in Nuremberg, the leader of the Order of Friars in Würzburg, and Georg's cousin, who was a high-ranking officer in the imperial military, and had contact with the Spanish governor of the Netherlands. When these failed to make a difference, they sought the assistance of the Orlick Council, and Georg received a mandate from the council that demanded that Dorothea be kept in clean and gentle conditions until childbirth, her having been pregnant when arrested. Dornheim did not deign to respond to this mandate. When the president of the council, the Duke of Thurstenburg, took a personal interest in the matter, and the defenders of Dorothea threatened to appeal directly to the Pope, the weight of political and spiritual pressure on Dornheim was immense, possibly higher than for any other case. It did not even phase him. He did respond, however, to the Orlok Council, but with defiance, maintaining that the trials were fair and that Dorothea was being treated well. He reported on the 28th of April that she had given birth to a healthy daughter in a regular court jail, but had since been transferred back to the Hexen House. The Orlik Council responded to his defiance with another mandate, dated the 11th of May, that accompanied an Imperial order for her release. This was as strong an order as could be issued. Keeping Dorothea imprisoned would be borderline treason. It looked like it would be a happy ending after all. Except it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Dornheim, getting word that the Imperial order was en route, used Dorothea's previous confession to order her execution. On the 17th of May 1629, Dorothea Flock was gripped with red-hot pincers and burnt alive. Her body was then reduced to ashes. She was 22 years old, had given birth to her first child just two months previously, and the order for her release arrived just half an hour after the flames consumed her. The outrage throughout the empire was palpable, and Dornheim was held responsible. Georg and his now-former in-laws formed an organisation that agitated against further witch trials, and brought the state of affairs in Bangburg to the attention of the electoral princes at a gathering in 1630. However... The trials at Bamberg only ended with the occupation of the city by Swedish and Saxon troops, led by Gustavus Adolphus, in February 1632. The advance of the Swedish forces made the great Hexenbrenner flee the city as fast as he could, and the officials of the Hexen house released their prisoners on the condition that they would not speak of the tortures they had suffered at their hands. The building would be torn down three years later in 1635, and while Bamberg would later hold further witch trials, they would never be as deadly or as wide-ranging again. Johann Georg Fuchs von Dornheim, the Hexenbrenner, the Hexenbishop, died in exile a year after he fled the city. He had ruled the Diocese of Bamberg for just shy of ten years, and had either directly or indirectly caused the violent and painful deaths of at least 600 women, men and children. Next week, we end our time in the Holy Roman Empire with a look at the deadliest witch trial in German history, that ran concurrently with the one in Bamberg, and similarly only ended when foreign troops occupied the region. I speak, of course, of the Prince Bishopric of Würzburg. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.